Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Ed Park, who is the author of the novels Personal Days and Same Bed, Different Dreams. He's a founding editor of The Believer and has worked in newspapers, book publishing, and academia. His writing appears in The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, Harper's, The Atlantic, and elsewhere. Born in Buffalo, which will play a part in, in the book we're discussing. Right. He lives in Manhattan with his family. Welcome, Ed. Thank you so much, Maris. I'm I'm super psyched to be here. Thanks for having me. Ah, what a pleasure. I I, I love that a very low-key question runs through same bed, different dreams. And, and, and that question, of course, is is what is history? And I'm not gonna ask you to answer that right now. <laughs> I think listeners will have to read the book, but what I wonder if you can talk about how fiction is the medium you use to to answer such a question. That's a great question. And I think that that question, what is history, comes up early in the book. And I've been thinking, I don't know that this was conscious as I was writing it, but I think the book is my answer, right? The book is kind of the answer to that question. Yeah. To talk about how fiction can be the medium with which to address that question and address the whole idea of history I didn't start out to write a historical novel. And and if this is a historical novel, I think it's a fairly unconventional one. Yeah. Usually when I start writing, I'm just that idea of like amusing myself and, and just trying to write a good sentence and try to, you know, try to keep whatever it is that I'm writing alive. And, you know, it was a very long process to write write this book. And one thing that was evident early on was that it it would deal in some way with uh, Korea, Korean history, ideas of Korea, and um, you know Korean Americanness, whatever that meant. And so that was on my mind, but I didn't quite know how how it would get there. And um, one thing that happened was that I read a book called Big Bang by a writer named David Bowman, who. Uh, it was posthumously published, but I had really loved his first novel back in the 90s. It was called Let the Dog Drive. And and I always kind of wondered what happened to him. He had a second novel and he did a, I think he did a biography of the Talking Heads, which I didn't read. And anyway, then the next thing I knew, I saw his obituary and then this book came out and I read it kind of just out of fondness for his earlier work. But it was really like a revelation. And, you know, I read a lot and I like a lot of books, but this is one of those examples of, you know, something about what he was doing just hit me with, you know, hit me full force. And I thought he is writing about American uh, pop culture, cultural history, political history, uh, you know, kind of mid-century through the 60s with a lot of like bold-faced names and he made everything interesting. There wasn't really, I might be misremembering the book a little bit, but there's a very strong narrative voice, but there's no main character. And I kind of almost, you know, and I was in year five or six, or I don't even know what year I was into writing my novel. Oh my gosh. And this was probably, you know, part of me was thinking I had reached some kind of impasse in my own book in saying that different dreams and I, I don't even want to tell you how many, 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 it, the draft is much 
that first draft is much, much longer than what you see here. It was just wow. it was out of control. And but but Big Bang really like was so exciting to me that I kind of started writing uh not really in that style, but just with that idea in mind that you could write history and have it be fiction and have it be interesting and have every episode be um fascinating or gossipy or you know it's just going to keep the reader turning the pages but what i did was i took kind of the things about korean history that i had always found fascinating you know for the past let's say 30 years um and even even things before that and just kind of wrote it in this tone of how am i going to get a, a reader who might not know any of this to be interested so i was like writing it very um in a way that appealed to me and I thought like a reader would would enjoy. But I didn't know that this was going to be in the book, Same Bed, Different Dreams. So I, I just thought I'll, I was inspired. Let's keep going. And the eureka moment was figuring out, wait, this is actually the book that uh, Echo, who is the uh, Korean novelist who goes missing in Same Bed, Different Dreams. You know, I always knew he he had some like unfinished masterpiece. Well. But I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to put that into the book. Like, do you write a whole other book? But what I was writing, this kind of strange historical, you know, I didn't, I would even just call it notes at that point. I realized that that was the novel that Echo was writing and that he never finished. So at at that point, you know, there was still a lot of work to be done, but it it was a way of um, bringing history into the structure of the novel in a way that felt uh, felt good and, and organic to me. Yeah. And and so we're told about a novel that takes place in three different novels. Yes. And then yeah, and then right. you have you have written one as well. I how do you even how do you manage it? Like even physically, like how how do you keep track of the storylines and when to break away for the next installment of the next storyline? Yeah. It's such a <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you could see the look of terror on my face as you as you asked that because <laughs> it really was you know it's one thing to write a long book that goes linearly it's another to be like wait there's going to be a book within the book that's kind of a second book and then there's going to be like a third uh you know wavelength which is has characters from both of the other strands but is also different in tone and so it it was as you can imagine a lot of um typing up uh, new kind of tables of contents, new like schemes, um, paper everywhere, paper like, you know, <laughs> lining the walls. Uh, I probably do have a picture of, you know, at one point, kind of out of frustration, but also just to be able to visualize like putting, taping pages on the wall just to see like where things fit in. Because it is, as the book got bigger, like the architecture is really hard to keep in your mind. Um, I guess the one thing I would say is that when I figured out that this kind of historical novel would be in the book, I could kind of figure out like the installments, right? And then mm -hmm. I would alternate that with um, a chunk of what, with with a, I would alternate that with kind of my original book, which is kind of the Soon Sheen storyline, which uh, in the book is the subtitle is The Sins, S-I-N-S. And what I did was I took that original manuscript of, of many, many, many pages and just said to myself, 
pick the six chapters that you like the best. Like I really said, like, just what are the best chapters? Forget about continuity, forget about, you know, oh, this, nobody will know. Just like six chapters. And and once I said that to myself, it was, um, it was, I don't know what the metaphor is, but it was like, raise the Titanic or something. Like it lifted out <laughs> from the sea of like ver verbiage. And I was like, okay, these are my, my tent poles and I'm going to insert the historical stuff here. Um, and then the the third storyline is kind of a different matter, but that was the big um, kind of structural. <laughs> God, I feel, I feel crazy as I talk about it, but that was the big <laughs> structural thing that I, that I managed to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I also love that, especially in, in echoes part of, of the, the book. Yeah. We are really told explicitly, oh, no, not just in Echoes, it, throughout, yeah. that writing from different viewpoints uh, at different times um, is helpful in understanding how how the web works. Yeah, I definitely. Um, once I broke out of the idea that it would all uh, I, just to backtrack, like the the original version, um, I'll just tell you part of most of it was just a straight first person, soon sheen with some flashbacks and um, and some of it's some of the stuff that I didn't use. I think is was fine, but it just didn't it just didn't feel agile enough or capacious enough to get at what I kind of gradually understood with <laughs> the themes of the book. So. I always, I don't know, I mean, not to sound, well, whatever, not to sound pretentious, but, you know, books like Ulysses and uh, Pale Fire, kind of the usual suspects, but also there's a there's a novel called The White Hotel by a writer named D.M. Thomas, a, a British writer who passed away this year. Um, just books that, that a night film by uh, Marisha Pestel, um, you know, just books with a lot of parts. I think if there's like a pulse, if the writer is passionate, like I feel like he or she can just tell it in all these different modes and you kind of get a more um, panoramic view of uh, of the story. And, you know, it's not for everyone and it's, it's definitely not for every book. And I'm not saying like, oh, my next book will be that way. But but even Personal Days, which is a relatively short book, it's it's like a third or a quarter of the size of this one. I think I, you know, I wrote that the first part of that book is in the first person plural, but at around page 60, I was mm -hmm. like, that's enough. You know, I get it. We, the, the, re the reader's going to get it. And so I was like, let's do something radical. And it's the next part is kind of written as a report. And then as I like neared the, you know, 40 page mark, I was like, okay, enough of that. Let's do... I, the the story had developed enough that I I thought this um, kind of long unpunctuated uh, you know uh, almost like this uh, piece of prose poetry would emerge in the last last third. So it's kind of like I guess at this point it's part of my style, but yeah. um, it's something I like to read anyway as well. So in other in other books that is, and and I. I love that you trust the reader to be okay with not knowing a bunch of different things. Yeah. But you also 
give the reader breadcrumbs. Like even, right. I think towards the end, uh, one of the characters says, "This all wraps up in, in, <laughs> in the final book." Um, tell me, tell me about that trust, though, um, because you, you had me the whole time. And, oh, great! Uh, yeah, it's that, that's quite a trick. I yeah, breadcrumbs is a good way of putting it. I think every time you start a section, you know that that is different in in, in structure or voice than than the previous one. Um, like you know, as a writer, I think there is this burst of freedom and energy, and I think that's a good thing. It like mm-hmm. you're like okay, now it's almost like here's a fresh canvas, like this is a triptych or whatever, um, and I can I'm putting on new marks on the on the page on the canvas. Um, but then, you know, I think once you get enough into that, whatever this new section is, then you have to really think like, how does it relate? Like in my head, maybe I know it relates, but mm-hmm. the reader's got to know, you know, after a couple pages, like, how does this, why am I reading this part? Who are these people, etc. And I think one of the fun things actually was, you know, when a lot of the book was done, but still not completely finished, like realizing in some of these, especially in the, this kind of, uh, notorious third strand that I've been alluding to, which which goes on the, under the title 2333, kind of realizing like some of these minor characters were could actually be characters from the other sections of the book. And so it was like a bit like Easter eggs or, mm-hmm. you know, cameos or, you know, walk on walk on rolls. But it's it's there if readers want it. Um, I think it also works if if you don't catch on to it. Uh but I have to say, like, you know, upon revising and editing, it, it always like made me smile to see like, oh, this this is that character when she was like, you know, a teenager or whatever. And and then, you you know, it almost like changes the uh, since the sensation of time, because you're reading something later that actually happened decades earlier. And it, it just gives it a, a much more. Um, complex and I, I hope satisfying uh, feel. Yeah, let, let's keep talking about time sure. because yeah, I love that in various parts of the book, there's there's the idea that, okay, if you have VCR, you can suddenly tape television shows and right. your entire world opens up in a way that you, suddenly you have so much time. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then there's something similar with, with the idea of how many movies you can see in a lifetime. Yes, yeah. And then, of course, the idea that war throws it completely uh, off balance. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. I, you know, part of what I, I'm finding interesting about this book, you know, you're I'm conscious of certain I was conscious of certain things as I was writing it, but then other things kind of sink in later. I mean, as much as it is about Korean things and. Korean American things and how Korean history and American history interlock. Um, you know, the character Soon Sheen is like roughly my age. Uh, you know, comes from Buffalo like I did. Uh, father was a psychiatrist, um, like like mine uh, is. And but it's also kind of a snapshot or a memory of the eighties. Not to get too Stranger Things, but. That's when, you know, that's kind of when I when I came of age and I feel like I remember the, the first VCR and just being like, wow, what does this, you know, what does this mean? Like everything seemed 
you know, at, at the time it, it could seem like just a new machine, a new gadget, but it was actually quite, quite profound. And in a way, especially kind of as we get into dream five, the last section of the book, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel very emotional actually talking about it now, but that's, the book is 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 quite fictional in in most respects, but you know a lot of those memories and impressions are almost like me trying to preserve that that moment in time and that moment in my life. Um, and you know, I, I hope other people, uh, <laughs> future generations, find it interesting. But it it kind of felt uh, felt important as I as I went on, and time and history became such a big part of the book. Yeah, and and so let's talk a little bit about. KPG, which yeah. for, for me, in terms of the first thing I did when I opened the book yeah. was I, I Googled what it was <laughs> yeah. and um, tried to keep that in mind as, as you expanded on, uh, and made an entire new world about it. Yeah. So the KPG is something I learned about you know, when I was in my twenties, I was I went to Columbia for my MFA, but I, I'm sure they still do it now. But you you would also have to take at least one class outside the department, and they offered a modern Korean history class, and I just thought it was it was probably the most because a lot of them were undergrads and stuff, um, and non writing people. But I was just I was like taking notes. You know, I was probably the best student there because it was all so fascinating to me and anyway one of the things that was was mentioned was the korean provisional government so in 1919 uh, uh japan had colonized korea in 1910 and you know there was obviously some resentment building up and in 1919 there was a big mass demonstration all across korea and at that point uh as a reminder korea is just one uh peninsula it's not cut up into north and south so it's all across this this uh, country that's now a colony, uh, a nonviolent uh, protest on, on the Koreans' part, I should add, and a declaration of independence is formulated. And then soon after this, um, Korean Provisional Government, or the KPG, is uh, established, and the headquarters are in Shanghai in China. Um, I've never been to Shanghai, but you, you, know, you can actually go online and see pictures of the original uh, 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 headquarters and like these very like dapper looking uh, Korean Korean guys sort of, uh, you know, uh, at the place. Um, but they name as their president, uh, Syngman Rhee, who at this point is in America. So he leaves Korea um, around the turn of the century. And he, he he's a very interesting character. We can talk about him later, but he, he goes to all these schools on the East Coast. He lives in Hawaii and he's a very flawed character, but one thing in those early days is he's always trying to get people to listen about what's going on in his homeland. And really nobody's listening to him, but the people in Korea know he's, he's like a legend. And so he is elected as a president, even though he's like thousands of miles away. So it's a very symbolic, uh, organization. And, um, you know, did they, they they tried to uh, change public opinion and you know how much they succeeded is is up for debate. But anyway, I once I learned about that, just this idea of a uh, government in exile um, was so fascinating to me. So anytime I would 
go like in a bookstore or a library and there's a book on Korean history or even like World War, or no World War II, but like um, early 20th century history, Asian history, I would look in the index to see if the KPG was mentioned, just looking for any kind of, you know, morsel. Um, but so the version of it that's in my book is, you know, it has a basis in reality, but a lot of it is fiction. I quote unquote enlist a lot of uh, real life figures and say that they are members of the Korean provisional government. I should add that they are in my book, but in reality, <laughs> uh, Marilyn Monroe, I do not, unless I'm- Maxwell Perkins, <laughs> not, Maxwell not Perkins. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, Thomas Wolfe. So, uh, but I did like this idea of um, anyone, even like Westerners who had some connection with Korea, like what if they were part of the, the KPG at some level? And, and that was really, you know, when we talked at the beginning, at the outset of, about kind of the historical aspect of the book, uh, the dream, which are called dreams in the book, dream one, two, three, four, and five. And that became kind of like the, the refrain. So I would have an anecdote about Jack London uh, as a, as a war reporter um, in 1904, and then all this stuff. And then the last line of that section would be Jack London uh, was a member of the Korean provisional government. Um and it was just, I mean, it was fun, but it was, it also just felt like a way to connect Korea with America. And like, I, you know, Jack London is a, is still a famous writer, but I don't know that many people know of that he was in Korea and he was a, he was a war correspondent. Um, and he, and he actually had a lot of kind of unkind things to say about, about Korea and Koreans, but um, you know, that's something that I had read decades ago and just stuck in my head and stuck in my craw. But I thought, wouldn't it be fun to put him in the book and to actually make him a member of the KPG somehow? Um, so, yeah, so that's that's kind of how that that element came came to be. And I do I love how many writers we get to see yeah. uh, in, in uh, one of my one of the things that resonated with me particularly now is there's a point in one of the dreams where the writer Richard E. Kim tells Philip Roth that Korea is kind of like the Israel of, of Asia. Yeah. And uh, that's that's a metaphor that rings true right that's, now. That's, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> uh, so Kim, growing up, he was kind of, I mean, not even growing up, I think I, I wasn't, I maybe was I was in college when I when I first learned of Richard E. Kim, but it's interesting. He you know he was an officer in the Korean War, and then uh, eventually came to Iowa, and so he intersected with you know University of Iowa's famous writing program, and I think Roth had been teaching there, so he intersects with Philip Roth, and uh, and for a long time he was like the only one, and Young Hill Kong had written. And and I eventually learned about him. And Teresa Hakim Cha is kind of this legendary uh, writer artist uh, from, from the early '80s, who I think I learned about a little bit later. But but Richard E. Kim, you know, resonated with me. And I'll just say this in the book um, later. Uh, I think I kept this in the book, but Philip Roth mentions in uh, Zuckerman Unbound. Uh, which you know, which I read uh, a long, long, long time ago. I guess probably in college, but I remember thinking, 
why does Philip Roth have this bit of Korean trivia in the book? And then uh, he, one of the one of the characters in the book says to Zuckerman, I guess that he's oh he's like a quiz former quiz kid, so he's got all this trivia, and he mentions this Korean admiral, and of course it's it's misprinted or misspoken in the Roth, but it is the um, this famous admiral named Lee Soon Shin who is who is named that's the name of the Korean restaurant in the beginning of my novel, anyway. But so anyway, I love how like many, like 40 years later or more, I'm like, for, let's say 40 years later, no, 35 years later, I find this, um, that Kim and Roth actually knew each other and uh, Roth spoke very highly of his, uh, of, of Kim's work. So that's, that's just one of those things where if you stick around long enough, uh, all the things that you remember <laughs> Like kind of can Come can back. work their way into a book, yeah. I love that. Let's talk a little bit about names in this book. Sure. Um, how they change, how they get westernized sometimes. Yeah. Um, homophones, um, and and I guess and I guess also anagrams. I mean, I when I yeah. think about the idea of same bed different dreams it's like yes the letters are the same <laughs> here we are right right the right meaning <laughs> the meaning shifts that i'm so glad you asked that because i mean anyone who knows me because i love i love wordplay i mean that's i think that's somehow seen as being uh unserious or too clever but i no way i yeah <laughs> i mean i do i do like three crossword puzzles a day i you know i I love that. Or just even just walking down the street, like, you know, you see a sign. It's like, oh, that's an anagram for blah, blah, blah. How do I harness that, though, into this book? So it's not just, you know, filigree. Um, how is there a deeper meaning? And I guess this is actually, I think, I don't know if it's profound, but it's definitely something that has been true in my life. Um, and that's, you know, I grew up in a household that, you know, my parents would speak a mix of Korean and English to me. Um, and I can't, I can't really speak Korean. If I do, it's very halting, but I still understand a lot. And, you know, one of the fun things about this book is rendering Korean words into English and the Anglicization of it. Um, so Soon Sheen, his, his first name is S-O-O-N, his last name is S-H-E-E-N. Uh, the, the typical way to spell anglicize that Korean last name is S-H-I-N, like your shin bone. Um, but Sheen actually had more, it was just a little more unique. It had a little more um, oomph. Uh, you can think of Charlie Sheen, of course, but there was also a Korean director, um, a Shin Sang-ok, who he, I think he was the one who was kidnapped by Kim Jong-il he and his wife who was an actress and he like made them make these movies and you can actually see some of them online. Uh, but he late, you know, they later uh, were freed and they came to America and he did like Beverly, like one of these like kitty ninja movies. Um, and his, and he anglicized his last name is S H E E N. Um, so, it, you know, that might seem like a small thing, but as somebody who, you know, I just read in English, I read everything in English. I don't, I can't read in any other language. Um, Names are important to me and, you know, 
on a very technical level, you want names to stand out to the reader, right? So, so they're easier to remember. Um, so that was like one early example, but I think there are also, you know, not to give too much away, but there are there are actually major plot points in the book that hinge on uh, either mishearings or uh, alternate anglicizations. Um, I will say one thing. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. In the book, there's a company called Harmony Holdings, a somewhat enigmatic group. And the what I associate Harmony to is uh, the Korean word for grandmother, which is Halmony. So you would spell it more like H-A-L-M-O-N-I. But I uh, I just have this memory, and, and I, I, I think I wrote about this uh, many years ago in an unpublished essay. Uh, when my parents first came to America, they lived, uh, they, they rent, they boarded in a house or they rented a, a floor of a house uh, run by kind of a, an older uh, German American woman. And I think years later, she's, and I, so that's where I was born. This is very like, it's on Dartmouth Avenue in Buffalo. And I think I might've put Dartmouth in the book. It's, it's like a very kind of a small, small house. And, but years later, she wrote a letter to them and somehow, you know, just said something about being like my, um, like my grandmother. And I think she, she wanted to write Halmony, um, but, you know, she spelled it Harmony. And I just thought that was the best misspelling. I wouldn't even call it a misspelling, but whatever, that was many years ago. And as you can see, it, it has still stuck with me. Um, but it 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 actually becomes a major uh, or it, kind of a big thing in the book uh, if you if if readers care to, care to track how that word is used. Yeah, and then and then I think we touched on this, but this book very much lends itself to rereading. And I, I, even just to prepare myself for this interview, oh. I went back a little bit and was like, "Oh my gosh, what's going like, on here?" <laughs> it's it's all there. It's all there. Yeah. Um, and, and even just the idea of studying different texts and um, doing close reads. Yeah. Um, and the importance of, of, of all of that. Yeah. I would love people to read it more than once. I mean, it's a lot to ask. We're all quite busy. <laughs> you know, I, I totally understand that. But it is kind of amazing. You know, I I don't do a ton of rereading, but I, there are these books that I'll just go back to, even though I've read them a thousand times. You know, and sometimes I just started teaching again. But you know, when I was teaching more, you know, certain classes I would repeat, and so I'd have to read the book again. But mm -hmm. there was something so uh, enriching, just as a reader, but also like validating, like. I liked this book the first time and on my fifth read, it's like even better. So, uh, you know, so it sounds a little immodest, but I did want the book to be something that, um, uh, you know, maybe kind of like you're saying, you, you, you finish it and, and feel satisfied, but hopefully there are, there are reasons to want to, um, you know, go back and, and if not read the whole thing, just like, you know, drill down into, into certain chapters and just kind of see what, see what's, uh, there or hidden there. I love that. It, and we didn't get to talk about hockey <laughs> or <laughs> Friday the 13th, but um, I think this is a, a good uh, 
introduction. So before we go, can you just yes. um can you recommend some books for us, please? Even though there are plenty of books in your book that you can Yeah. Um I thought I would just uh mention two books. Uh one is quite slim. Did I bring it out here? It's called Generations by Lucille Clifton. Oh, it's right here. It's a memoir mm -hmm. that she wrote um in the 70s and she, you know, we all know Lucille Clifton as this uh, great poet um, who, who is people still read today. Um, somebody named Toni Morrison was her editor. And not, I think not just her editor, I think she wanted, I don't think Clifton would have written this book unless uh, Toni Morrison was like, uh, you should you should write this, you should write this book. And so it's, it's so, I don't know what to compare it to. I, it makes me think a little bit of some of those early, like thin Ondace books, like um, Coming Through Slaughter. Like it's it's written in this, I guess it's poets writing nonfiction <laughs> and, and bringing their poetic uh, talent to bear on it. Um, there are these like repetitions uh, and images. It's, it's just a very potent work. And it's a, you know, generations, it's about her, her family and, um, you know her her parents, especially her father, um, and their kind of uh, journey. Uh, you know, to to get to where to where she was. And I and one reason I I wanted to talk about this is because she was born in Buffalo, and um, you know she eventually left left Buffalo. But uh, I do I do think of her as one of the great uh, Buffalonian um, Buffalonian writers. Um, Actually, I was going to bring up a different book, but maybe I'll bring up another Buffalonian named, his name is Lawrence Block, and he's oh. a well-known mystery writer, thriller writer. Um, I've I've had a chance to uh, get to know him a little bit over the years. One book that might have, he's, what I like is, you know, he's he's quite old now, but he's like self-publishing like, like, uh, like crazy and his old stuff, but also there's a memoir called A Writer Prepares that you've got to read um and it's really about how he got into the writing business in new york in the 60s uh starting out as a working at, a, at the scott meredith literary agency and all the schemes and like it, it's just it's just really great and um yeah so two two favorite buffalonian writers uh lawrence block and lucille clifton i love that Ed, thank you so much. Stay in bed, different dreams out now. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.